Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Here on Stolen Lives, we discuss brutal and heartbreaking cases against children. Themes may include child murder, torture, and sexual, domestic, and child abuse. I do try my best to remain respectful for the babies in these stories and leave out unnecessary details that, honestly, none of us need to know to understand the frustration of why and how this ever happened. However, if you find any of these themes triggering, this podcast may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. In the last 10 plus years, the United Kingdom has been confronted by the rising epidemic of child abuse. According to government statistics, in the years 2021 and 2022, there were over 29,000 recorded child abuse offences in England and Wales. The harrowing stories of children subjected to this abuse have permitted the headlines, shocking the British public. Eight-year-old Victoria Columbia is one of these victims. Her case would become one of the UK's most well-publicised and heavily investigated cases. Victoria's case would be one of the first times the British public found themselves face-to-face with the reality of the rising epidemic in their country. Unfortunately, 23 years on, few lessons have been learned and children like Victoria continue to slip through the cracks. This is Victoria's story. November 2nd, 1991, Bert and Frances Columbier welcomed Victoria into their lives. The family lived in a Bobo Ivory Coast and knew Victoria was unique very early on. One family member described her as the central figure of the family. She lived to entertain her relatives with song and dance and she always had the brightest smile on her face. Victoria was intelligent and kind Bert and Francis were proud of the daughter they had raised. In October 1998, the Columbier family were visited by Marie-Therese Cow, a great-aunt on Francis's side. Marie was known as wealthy and successful in the family circle, and people looked up to her. One day, Marie visited Bert and Francis and hit them with a proposition. She had a French passport and she lived in Paris for the last few years, she wanted to take one of the Columbier children back with her to France to give them a better education. Whilst life in the Ivory Coast was happy for the Columbier children, the offer of being educated in France was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. A British barrister later told the court that the offer to the Columbier family held the same significance as if someone in the UK offered to send a child to Eton or another prestigious school. The Columbiers would miss their daughter dearly, but at the time they believed their decision was the best for Victoria. With the offer of a lifetime on the table, Marie told the family there was just one problem. Initially, she had tried to recruit a girl called Anna, but her parents refused. 
Marie had already listed Anna as her daughter on her French passport. Victoria would now be known as Anna and would have to wear hair extensions to match the girl in the picture. At the end of October, Victoria packed her bags and said goodbye to her parents. Victoria was nervous but excited about her new adventure and promised to write her family often. Sadly, this would be the last time the Colombiers ever saw their bright and beautiful Victoria alive. The passage from the Ivory Coast to France was smooth, and by November 1998, the two were living in Paris. Victoria had made it through passport control, and as far as the French government were concerned, she was a French citizen named Anna. Marie and Victoria lived in a small flat in Paris, with Marie receiving benefits each month. Just weeks into Victoria's new life, things took a turn for the worse. Marie began physically and verbally abusing Victoria, who was going by Anna. The abuse was so severe that Victoria regularly missed school, mainly because Marie was trying to hide her injuries. Victoria's attendance dropped to a meagre 50%, and the French education authorities picked up on this. Interventions were staged, and the authorities tried to work with Marie to get her daughter Anna back to school. When the gentle approach failed, the authorities pressured Marie by threatening legal action. French social services also became involved due to Victoria's poor attendance. In March 1999, Victoria attended her final lesson at Jean Moulin Primary School. When she arrived that morning, the teachers were horrified by her appearance. Marie had claimed that Victoria, who they knew as Anna, was suffering from a dermatological condition. When Victoria took her seat, they noticed she had a shaved head and was wearing a wig. She was quieter and much more subdued than before, and listened closely to Marie's instructions. French authorities knew something wasn't right, but Victoria slipped out from their grasp before anything could be done. Just five months after arriving in France, in April 1999, Marie and Victoria fled for London. The pressure from social services and the government became all too much. According to the Lamming Inquiry, which was ordered following Victoria's death, Marie had also been collecting benefits she was not entitled to. Luckily for Marie, she had family in London and she knew she could make a quick getaway. Victoria and Marie were once again on the move. The two bounced around temporary accommodation before being placed in a hostel on Nicoll Road in May 1999. It was also around this time that Victoria was introduced to Esther Acker, a distant relative of Marie. From their first meeting, Esther sensed something wasn't right with Victoria, who she had been introduced to as Anna. During one visit, Esther commented on Victoria's wig. When Victoria removed her wig, her head was covered in large, painful blisters. Before Victoria even had a chance to speak, Marie assured Esther that she was fine and that Victoria had an accident with boiling water. Marie saw that Esther was asking too many questions and she began to distance herself. Whenever Esther saw Victoria in the street, she noticed that she was always fully clothed, no matter what the weather, and always looked scruffy and dirty. Marie kept herself away from Esther's prying eyes, and Esther did not see Victoria for another six weeks. 
When the three bumped into each other again, Esther noticed that Victoria's condition had worsened. She was still wearing the same wig, but now she had a large scar on the side of her cheek. Again, Marie brushed off the inquiry, conjuring up a tall tale of how Victoria had fallen on an escalator. Victoria was never allowed to speak for herself, and she remained silent in the presence of Marie. Esther knew that the dynamic of who she believed to be mother and daughter was wrong, and she continued to try and involve herself in Victoria's life. In June 1999, Esther visited the hostel where the two were staying and was appalled by the conditions. The hostel was dirty and untidy and did not have enough space for Victoria to sleep or live. This time, she decided that she had seen enough, and she called Brent Social Services to file a report. During this call, Esther reeled off the exact address and her concerns for Victoria's safety. Esther also tried to take Victoria to a doctor as she was sickly and frail, but the doctors noted that there were, quote, no child protection concerns, unquote. The blisters on Victoria's head never seemed to heal, and she was forced to wear a wig to cover her injuries. Every day, Esther called Brent Social Services for an update on Victoria's case, only to learn that the report had, quote, gotten lost in the system, unquote. Brent Social Services would be one of many agencies that would fail Victoria, ultimately contributing to her death. Victoria's abuse would continue to escalate, and when Marie learned that Esther had called social services, she began avoiding her in the street. By June 1999, Marie's application for benefits had been rejected, and all of her anger was directed towards Victoria. Marie found a job at the local hospital as her benefits had been denied. Instead of being enrolled in school, Marie sent Victoria to Priscilla Cameron, who was a childminder. Priscilla had several years of experience under her belt, and from the first moment she met Victoria, she knew something was wrong. Marie often left Victoria with her for most of the day, as she wanted nothing to do with her. When Victoria was away from Marie and with other children... Priscilla and her daughter Avril noticed a considerable change in her. She emerged from her shell and began singing and dancing with the other children. Despite her emaciated and frail condition, Victoria thrived in her new environment. But come 5pm every afternoon, Victoria's demeanour changed. She knew it was home time and became sullen and withdrawn. When Marie came to collect her, Priscilla noticed that the two exclusively spoke in French and that Marie would shout at Victoria. She chastised her and called her wicked. There was no love or affection between the two, who were supposedly mother and daughter. But Priscilla had no choice but to let Marie take Victoria home. As the weeks went by, Victoria's physical condition worsened. Marie dressed Victoria in long sleeves and skirts to try and hide the injuries. On one occasion... Priscilla asked Marie about the cuts on Victoria's fingers, and Marie responded that Victoria had grabbed a razor blade and cut herself. Priscilla did not believe her story, but she felt powerless. The cycle would continue. Victoria would be a happy, smiley girl during the day, but when Marie came to pick her up, she slipped back into her subdued and submissive role. July 1999 would mark the beginning of the end for Victoria. 
A month earlier, 40-year-old Marie met 26-year-old bus driver Carl Manning. After a whirlwind romance, Marie moved herself and Victoria into Carl's one-room bedsit. According to those who knew Marie and Carl, Marie was extremely manipulative and had taken advantage of Carl. There was little to no regard for Victoria, as she was made to sleep on a small mattress in the same room as Carl and Marie, who slept in a proper bed. From the outset, Carl hated Victoria. In his eyes, she stood in the way of his and Marie's sexual relationship and was seen as a burden. Carl did not want a child living with him, but he was prepared to do what he could to keep Marie. And on July 13, 1999, the pair had had enough. Marie packed the few belongings that Victoria had and marched her over to Priscilla Cameron's home, telling her she didn't want her anymore and that she could keep her daughter forever. Poor Victoria stood silently as Marie told Priscilla that she was a burden and should never be returned to her. Bewildered, Priscilla agreed to keep Victoria for the night whilst Marie and Carl cooled off. When Victoria stepped inside and removed her coat, Priscilla and her daughter Avril gasped in shock. According to the Lamming report into Victoria's death, Victoria was wearing a hat when she arrived and when she took it off, quote, she saw what she took to be a burn the size of a 50 pence piece on her face. She also saw three circular marks on Victoria's jaw, unquote. For the first time in months, Victoria slept in a clean, warm bed wearing clean pyjamas. Due to the physical abuse she had been subjected to, she had become incontinent and her mattress had become soiled. Marie and Carl seemed to take great pleasure in throwing the mattress out and refused to buy her a new one. They forced Victoria to sleep in a dirty, cramped bathroom on the floor, even when winter came. Avril and Priscilla took Victoria to the Central Middlesex Hospital for emergency treatment the following morning. Her wounds were filled with pus and the little girl groaned in pain. She was emaciated and fragile, but somehow maintained her cheerful spirit and signature bright smile. Victoria's examination took over two hours due to the number of fresh and healed injuries that covered her body. When doctors got to Victoria's legs, they discovered that her thighs were covered in cigarette burns. They knew these injuries were non-accidental and an emergency call to the police and Brent Social Services was made. Due to the nature of the injuries, Victoria was placed under police protection pending the social services investigation. Throughout the ordeal, Priscilla and Avril stayed with Victoria and held her hand. Later that evening, Dr Ruby Schwartz attended to Victoria. After reading her notes and examining her, she made a shocking decision. Dr Ruby Schwartz overturned the initial findings that had concerned doctors enough to call social services. Dr Schwartz changed the notes, stating that Victoria's injuries were actually scabies. Other doctors protested, but the final ruling stuck. As a result, Victoria was released from police protection and the referral to Brent Social Services was cancelled. Notes from that hospital visit also stated that Victoria had significant marks across her back and multiple fresh and healed wounds to her head and face. Victoria Columbia was released back into the custody of Marie Cowell later that evening. Priscilla and Avril Cameron would never see Victoria again. Victoria's visit to the hospital enraged Marie and the abuse worsened. 
Victoria would never again go to school or the childminders. She was isolated from society, believing no one was coming to save her. July 24, 1999. Victoria was admitted to another hospital, North Middlesex Hospital, yet another institution that would foul this little girl. This time, Victoria's injuries were much more severe. Images of these injuries are available online, but please view them at your own discretion as they are highly distressing. Victoria presented an emergency with severe burns to her face. According to Marie, Victoria had placed her own head under a hot tap in a bid to soothe the itchiness of her scabies. Victoria was admitted to a paediatric ward, where nurses described her as a ray of sunshine. Some efforts to report this incident were made, and Victoria's case was handed over to the Huringay Social Services. Unfortunately, the full details of the case never made it through the system due to, quote, miscommunication, unquote. Disturbingly, Victoria's nursing notes state that the relationship between her and her supposed mother was more like that of a, quote, master and servant, unquote. And when Marie visited Victoria in the hospital, Victoria would wet herself out of fear. The nursing notes also indicated that several nurses noticed injuries and marks to Victoria, with one nurse writing that she saw a belt buckle outline on Victoria's back. Social worker Lisa Arthur Worry was assigned to Victoria's case. And on August 6, 1999, Victoria was back in the care of Marie and Carl, the two people who had inflicted the injuries. Lisa Arthur Worry had been qualified for just 18 months and had not been given the full details of Victoria's case. What would follow would be a gross inadequacy on the part of several social services, the police and other institutions. Throughout Victoria's short time in the United Kingdom, there were at least a dozen times where she could have been saved. No child protection conference was ever called during her stay at the North Middlesex Hospital, and it appears as though Brent Social Services had failed to hand over information to Huringay. To make matters worse, Lisa Arthur Worry never actually spoken to Victoria during the handful of visits she made to the bedsit. She only spoke directly to Marie, who assured her that everything was fine. Now, of course she did. In November 1999, Marie called the Huringay Social Services in a panic. She told social workers that her boyfriend, 26-year-old Carl Manning, had been sexually abusing her daughter, 8-year-old Anna. Marie was told to go to the office as soon as possible, and when she walked through the door, social workers were shocked. Marie arrived with Victoria, Anna, as instructed. But Carl, the man she was accusing of abusing her daughter, he was there as well. Lisa Arthur Worry explained the severity of the claims that Marie was making, and she soon retracted her statement when she realised that she and Victoria would be placed in emergency housing and not a new home. It would later transpire that Marie made these false allegations after her council house application had been rejected. And the beatings continued. Weeks after the false allegations were made, Lisa Arthur Worry's managers told her that Victoria's case was now being closed. Lisa had made several attempts to contact Marie, but these had failed. 
On one occasion, she turned up at Marie's house and knocked on the door, but no one answered. Marie, Carl and Victoria were inside, but chose to ignore the knocking. Lisa bizarrely assumed that the family had moved and made no further follow-up. Weeks later, Victoria's case was closed and her fate was sealed. It wasn't enough for Marie to humiliate Victoria in the confines of the bedsit, and in late 1999, she began dragging Victoria to church. Victoria was forced to wear wigs, baseball caps and long clothing to hide her injuries. Churchgoers noticed that Victoria was deadly silent and did not interact with the other children. Marie explained to the church pastor that Victoria had been possessed by a demon, which described her countless injuries. Marie did this several times, taking Victoria to as many churches as possible to ingrain the humiliation even further. The winter of 1999 in England was bitterly cold, and Victoria was forced to endure the freezing temperatures in a tiny bathroom with no heating. At night, Victoria was wrapped in a bin bag sealed with masking tape. As Victoria was incontinent, the bag was filled with urine and feces and it was never cleaned. To further humiliate her, Carla Marie taped up her hands with masking tape and served her food on plastic plates. The only way she could eat was to press her face onto the ground and into the plate, like a dog. This abuse continued for months. Victoria was restrained, cold and starved. She was locked in the bathroom for many hours at a time, and at night Carla Marie would turn the lights off. When Victoria was freed from the bathroom, it was to be beaten by Carl and Marie. Reports would later confirm that Victoria was hit with a bike chain, a belt, a cooking spoon, a hammer, a coat hanger, and had been kicked by Carl's studded football boots. Whilst this depraved abuse took place, social services did nothing. There was no attempt to track Marie and Carl down after their supposed move, and Victoria was erased from the minds of the overworked social workers. The next time social services would hear the name Victoria Kalimbe would be when the police began their official inquiry. Christmas 2000 came and went, but Victoria did not get any toys. Her family had not heard from her or Marie for months, but they just assumed that Victoria was absorbed in her studies. Thursday, February 24, 2000. Carla Marie appeared at the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God with a very sickly Victoria. Marie had been at the church days beforehand, asking for advice on casting out the demons possessing Victoria. The pastor noticed that Victoria was lethargic and slipping in and out of consciousness, that she was cold to the touch and did not respond to his voice. Instead of the prayers and deliverance they had planned, the pastor told Marie to take Victoria to a hospital. Victoria was immediately taken to North Middlesex Hospital, the hospital that she'd been admitted to just months earlier. Her condition was listed as critical, and during their examination, nurses noted that Victoria was hypothermic, with a core body temperature of just 27 degrees Celsius, or 80 degrees Fahrenheit. It took nurses several attempts to read Victoria's temperature, as the equipment couldn't pick up temperatures that low. It was quickly realised that Victoria was dying. She was transferred to St Mary's Hospital's Paediatric Intensive Care Unit in the early morning hours of February 25, 2000. 
Doctors and nurses in the intensive care unit discovered that Victoria's lungs, heart and kidneys were failing. The inquiry into her death also notes that, quote, the medical staff were unable to straighten her legs due to the severe hypothermia. Over the hours, Victoria suffered a number of episodes of respiratory and cardiac arrests, and her respiratory, cardiac and renal systems began to fail. Unquote. Her body had finally succumbed to the years of abuse and neglect. For 13 hours, doctors and nurses did their best to revive her. But at 3.15pm, Victoria's heart stopped beating. She was declared deceased, and the Metropolitan Police were called in to investigate. Dr Nathaniel Carey carried out Victoria's autopsy, and his findings would sicken the nation. He reported finding over 128 separate injuries on Victoria's tiny body. He later stated that no part of her body, quote, had been spared, unquote. Cuts, bruises, burns and abrasions covered every inch of her. Dr Carey, who was a seasoned pathologist, said that this was, quote, the worst case of deliberate harm to a child he had ever seen, unquote. After eight-year-old Victoria Columbia was pronounced deceased, Marie-Therese Cowell was arrested at the hospital. She made a great scene whilst being arrested and would cling to her demon possession defence. Investigators quickly put the story together and Carl Manning was also arrested on February 26, 2000. As expected, Marie was uncooperative, but Carl Manning's answers would shock even the most experienced investigator. Carl was surprisingly forthcoming in his interviews. He admitted to beating Victoria Daly, even telling investigators how he beat her and what weapons he used. He told them that he hit her with a bike chain. Marie would hit her feet with a hammer. During this interview, Carl said one of the most disturbing and heartbreaking things I have ever heard. Quote, that was the thing about Victoria. You could hit her time and time again and she would always take it. Unquote. A search of the filthy bedsit that Victoria was forced to call home produced several bottles of bleach. It was clear that Carl had made attempts to clean up following Marie's arrest, but no amount of bleach could conceal what they had done. According to reports, crime scene investigators found Victoria's blood in the bath, on the walls and on most of the furniture. Carl and Marie were sent to separate prisons to await their trial date, Investigators continued to build up their case against them, but they ran into an issue. For Victoria's life in the UK, she'd been known as Anna Cow. When investigators discovered Marie's passport, they realised it had been falsified. The girl in the photo was very different to the girl in the morgue. Investigators were tasked with uncovering the true identity of the girl who died at the hands of the two monsters. Fortunately, it did not take them long to discover who that little girl was, eight-year-old Victoria Columbia. The Metropolitan Police now had to call Burton Francis to let them know their daughter was dead. The lives of the Columbiers will never be the same following that phone call in February 2000. Burton Francis had placed their trust in Marie to give Victoria a shot at a better future. They believed their daughter was in France, when in fact she'd been 3,000 miles away from home in the UK. Burton Francis were flown out from the Ivory Coast to London to formally identify the body of their little girl. 
November 20, 2000. Marie Cowell and Carl Manning stood before the judge at the Old Bailey, the infamous British courthouse. The trial until the murder of Victoria Columbia lasted until January 12, 2001. Jurors wept as the prosecution described the torture and hell that Victoria had endured. Hundreds of photographs were submitted into evidence, displaying things no person should see, let alone experience. Marie showed no remorse at the trial. One barrister commented that Marie laughed and cackled during the trial, whilst Victoria's parents silently wept in the benches. Marie stuck to her demon possession defence, which did not convince the jury. Marie's narcissism and manipulative personality were on display for all to see. Carl Manning told the court that whilst he had intended to hurt Victoria, he never intended to kill her. It took the jury four days to deliberate their verdict whilst the country held their breath. Victoria's case dominated their headlines for months, with Haringey and Brent social services bearing the brunt of the blame. Lisa Arthur Worry was vilified in the press, as were the other agencies involved. Many brought into question the aspect that race may have played a part in Victoria's case. Would things have been different if she'd been a little white girl? The entire country was appalled at how many services, with so many opportunities, could foul this catastrophically. After four days of deliberation, the jury returned to the Old Bailey to hand down their verdict. The jury found Marie Cowell and Carl Manning guilty of murder, and both were sentenced to life in prison. The fallout of Victoria's case was massive, and it sparked a public inquiry. Carl and Marie were invited to speak at the inquiry in a controversial move, along with 160 other witnesses. Marie continued her power control struggle as she refused to appear via video link. Days later, she was brought in from the prison to give evidence in person. Disgustingly, Marie began to attack Victoria's parents as soon as she took the stand and refused to answer questions and began shouting and screaming at the top of her lungs. The inquiry found major failings of all social services involved and other agencies. It was determined that Victoria was known to four local authorities who had at least 12 chances to save her life, but none of them stepped in. Years later, Huringay Social Services would find themselves in the spotlight once again with the death of Baby P, who was tortured to death by his parents. And Baby P's story is one of the most requested stories I get to cover. I will cover his story later this year. Victoria Columbia's case continues to shock a nation. How can social services that are designed to protect vulnerable children fail so badly? The Lamming Inquiry hoped to fix the issues within the system whilst holding those who failed accountable. Unfortunately, as we have seen, this inquiry did nothing to keep children safe. Over the last 10 years, reported incidents of child abuse have risen, and numerous children have lost their lives at the hands of their parents. If you suspect a child is being mistreated, if you see or hear something, say something. You may save a life. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, 
or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.